be talking, as Curtis said, on Mark chapter 7, continuing the series on Mark. Um, and this sermon, when I was going through it, I was, hey, this actually kind of dovetails with the last message I spoke on the incarnation. Um, and it's kind of a mm, global perspective. In other words, I'm not going to get into a lot of details because this is kind of one of those fork in the road sermons. In other words, there's two paths, and we'll be talking about those paths um, from Mark. And so we will um, we'll go through that. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Mark throughout the sermon, so you'll get a glimpse of the different uh, stages he goes, Jesus goes through to describe what he's trying to get at here. The message is dirty hands, dirty people, dirty methods, and those are the three sections <laughs> in Mark 7. Uh, it's kind of the underlying theme. Sometimes we can read through scripture and get too caught up in the details that we don't realize kind of the foundation of what he's leading us through, and uh, so that's what we'll do today through Mark chapter 7. If this works, we'll be... Okay. When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Weird. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Did we skip? Sorry. Um, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far, are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to, do, to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer put, permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within a person, and they defile that person. 
The Pharisees, and I think I alluded to this uh, in my previous message, the Pharisees was actually a sect of men who, while the Israelites had been uh, taken captive into Babylon, these men formed a group to make sure that they did not lose the tradition of the law of Moses. And so they would recite and study and, and promote the law of Moses. But they realized that just promoting the law, just keeping the law fresh in their minds did not keep, keep people from breaking the law. So they created what they called fence laws or seag in their, in their language. They created a, a version of laws that were more restrictive, outside, more restrictive than the law of Moses. Their idea was that if we, if we become more restrictive in our rules, that focus will keep us from getting too close to breaking Moses' law. That didn't work. So they created more restrictive laws to keep them from getting too close to that first set of fences, which would keep them from breaking the law of Moses. That didn't work. So they created another set of fences and another set of fences. And over 400 years, you come to the time of Jesus, and they're arguing with him about, your people don't keep our traditions, our fences. And those are there to guard us from keeping or getting too close to the law of Moses and breaking that. And he points out to them very clearly, it's not working because you have made such an emphasis on these restrictions that your restrictions now require so much energy, focus, and uh, dedication that fulfilling them requires that these people no longer have the time or the focus to honor their parents properly. And so the very law you're trying to get them to not break is being broken because your emphasis is so much on rules and details and the minutia of what might be wrong. And so his, his message was to them very clearly that rules do not prove righteousness. Just because somebody keeps a lot of rules does not mean they are more righteous. In fact, his focus was quite the opposite. There's a similar passage. As you know, Jesus did not mince words. There's a similar passage in Matthew where he's talking to these scribes whose intentions were to try to keep the law pure for the people, uh, but had strayed from that. Whoop, I am losing my connection. That's not a good sign. <laughs> Sorry. One moment. Chat amongst yourselves. <laughs> so, did you hear the one about the guy? Don't worry, I have ADHD. I can just pick up where I left off. And I will forget I did this. <clears throat> you probably think that's just a joke. <laughs> Anybody want an iPad? It's used. Get that one. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The hypocrites, you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin. They even tithe their spices. This is how focused they were on every minutia. We have to get every minutia correct. Can you imagine going through your spice cabinet and going, weighing out a tenth of your dill, giving that to God? Uh, and this is the problem. You get so focused on the minutia, you will miss the broader perspective of the reason for the law. You tie the mint, the dill, and the cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These, ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> really? I think there's a, some kind of demon in our system. Excuse me. Like I said, I won't remember this happening. Hope it doesn't throw you off. Wow. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside will also be clean. He's obviously talking metaphorically about them. They want to appear to be righteous. They want to show through rules to prove their righteousness. But righteous, uh, rules cannot prove righteousness. And rules cannot create righteousness. It does not produce righteousness either. In Colossians chapter 2, since you died with Christ to the elemental forces, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rules appear to be a pathway to righteousness. They look like they are wise. And he's very clearly saying they have zero power to restrain the, the flesh. And so the paradigm of the law is quite clear. Our, the goal of the law is to try and prove or to produce righteousness. And the method is to have rules that help us avoid sin. The outcome, though, is that increasing restrictions actually turn us away from God's command. Your focus on more and more and more detailed rules of what not to do will actually trip you up into breaking the main emphasis of what the laws were supposed to point you to. And the message is you can emphasize in your life, you can emphasize avoiding sin and still not be doing good. Not doing bad is not the same as doing good. <laughs> and we are called to do good. 
if you were, uh, Jared and Chanel are heading to Europe on their honeymoon, you know, so they have to make a list of what they want to take. So in order to make that list, they're not going to start eliminating all the things they don't want to take. You don't, you don't achieve a goal and find out the criteria for achieving the goal by eliminating everything that has... So on the list, you won't say, don't take gravel from the driveway, don't take a chainsaw, don't take mustard, don't take the oven, don't take the scum from around the ring in the bathtub. Don't, like, the list of things you don't take would just consume you, and you would never find the things to take. And that is the emphasis of the law. The emphasis of the law is what not to do. To, to not... Well, I, I kind of wanted to avoid making lists because we all have different lists. <laughs> That's the problem also. And time seems to change those lists. It used to be don't, you can't skate on Sunday. You know, or, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll try to avoid <laughs> the details. But we have all of these criteria. And our focus cannot be what not to do. Avoiding sin does not produce righteousness. It does not produce it, and it does not prove that you're righteous. That is the law. So how did Jesus uh, bring us free from that? In Acts chapter 13, he shows, he said, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law. Interesting scenario. I had never read that quite in it, that, that context before. You are now freed from everything the law couldn't free you from. And the law, which was binding and bonding, <laughs> which, which focused on not doing things, was supposed to free you from something. So how did restrictions free you? The very, the very emphasis is against freedom. And so those who follow law cannot be freed from anything, but grace, forgiveness, frees you from the very things you're trying to achieve, producing righteousness. And so accepting Christ's payment frees us from having to follow law in order to prove or produce righteousness, because he has provided righteousness through his death. Romans 8 carries on, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So he's drawing, this is the fork in the road. Are you going to focus on avoiding sin to produce righteousness, which cannot happen? Or are you going to recognize you are free from having to live under law and you are free to walk in the Spirit, have your mind on the Spirit Galatians 5 again, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, you're not free 
to sin, <laughs> you're free from sin. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The law was about exclusion, about avoiding sin. The Ten Commandments, most of them, eight out of the ten, were thou shalt not, 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 thou shalt not. <laughs> That's what law is. Law restricts. You are not to do this and this and this. And if you keep your mind on that, desiring to produce or prove righteousness, you will fall into the very trap you're trying to avoid. It will make you unrighteous, not righteous. Uh, scripture is clear on that. The funny thing is, is that if you walk by the Spirit, you will avoid sin. So avoiding sin is a byproduct of keeping focused on hearing the Spirit's voice. But the law focuses on avoiding sin. That's the difference. And that's a critical difference. The law is focused on behaving and not misbehaving. Walking in the Spirit is this freedom to simply Hear what the, God is teaching you and telling you and pursue the good in that. And when you do that, the byproduct is you will also avoid sin. So it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of where your heart is, what your motivation is. Uh, Jesus said, I only do what I hear the Father telling me. And he said, my sheep know my voice and listen and follow me. And of course, in Hebrews, it tells us that God has now written the law in our hearts. It's not this external code of conduct we follow. It's the Spirit. It's the voice of God. And this is back to the incarnation, that, that Christ is in you, and that we should expect that he would lead us and guide us. Uh, the whole purpose of our actions has now changed. We are free from trying to prove or produce righteousness. You can walk in the righteousness that he gave you. And of course, the purpose is different. We're, not long, we're no longer trying to prove or produce righteousness. Uh, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand. And it gives light in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the, the focus of the law was try to prove and produce my own righteousness. The focus of freedom is that you are righteous, you are free to hear his voice, follow his ways, and now the goal is to uh, love my neighbor as myself, and to glorify God through that. Good deeds, good works. But again, good works can also be a lot, a trap of the law. So it becomes this relationship. This is so critical that our, our faith is one of relationship, of hearing God's voice, because we can turn what to do into law just as easily as we can turn what not to do into law. 
or I have to go to church every Sunday to prove my righteousness and, prov- and produce righteousness. Okay, that's not the purpose. <laughs> now you are making your freedom law. <laughs> and it becomes this desire to, to do good and to glorify God. And so you select the good among all the options rather than avoiding the evil among all the options. And so the template changes from law to freedom. Instead of proving and producing righteousness as my goal, uh, instead of uh, making rules to make sure I avoid sin, um, I actually switch to freedom. And the goal instead is now that I love my neighbor. That is the law. That's the only rule. Everything filters into that. And it's interesting that in the Gospels, uh, Jesus, they record Jesus as saying, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But in the, go- in the what's the other ones that aren't in the Gospels? Yeah, epistles. Thank you. It switches to, there's only one law, love your neighbor as yourself. Hold it, what? Wouldn't you have selected love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus is saying, if you love the least of these, you're loving me. If you care for them, you're caring for me. And so by focusing on loving my neighbor, I am loving God. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You can love your neighbor and hate God, but not truly love your neighbor. So the agape, the giving, the, the caring the giving up myself for my neighbor becomes my expression of love for God. And the method is not a, a list. You know, every morning you wake up and read the list of things you shouldn't do and things you should do to love your neighbor. It's a voice. It's walk in the spirit and do good. And the outcome is to reveal God's goodness. And you can emphasize walking in the spirit and you will avoid sin, but it's not your focus. Your focus is to do good. So what's your perspective before we move on to the next passage? This passage is about all the external stuff. It's about not a mind shift of what rules are and what rules aren't. It's a mind shift of rules don't, should not be your focus. If rules are your focus, you will try to perfect them to prove your own righteousness or produce your own righteousness. And you will actually go contrary to God's um, command to love others, not yourself. I, I used to back in the days when I had some people I was counseling as a pastor they, I would once in a while have people and I don't want to step on any toes but I'm yes I do I want to step on your toes I, they, would, they would come and say oh, you know I've heard I've got to love myself before I can love other people and I'm just learning to love myself I'm focusing on really loving myself and I'm going to do that first and I just got to love myself and I'm like that is a bottomless pit. You do realize you will never move past that. If we focus on loving ourselves before we step out and love others, you will never move to loving others because you have an insatiable desire. Uh, as one man said, I am already deeply in love with myself. <laughs> and most people, I would say, I don't think the problem is that you don't love yourself. I think the problem is you might think you deserve better than you're getting in life and you're trying to improve your own experience and so you're going to love yourself until you are... (laughs) And so I do think people should love themselves just less often. Like, okay, love yourself, great. Now let's focus on what Jesus said. Love your neighbor. 
Because we could, that's a bottomless pit. And, and that is no different than the law. If we are seeking to perfect what not to do, we will never move on and do good. And so we must separate ourselves from that, that emphasis. And that's what the switch was he's trying to get across. And then he applies it a couple of other ways. Uh, this was the dirty hands, you know. You're supposed to wash your hands. That's not the point, people. Uh, he moves from dirty hands to talking about what people might say, dirty people or unqualified people or uh, people we shouldn't associate with. You realize there's not a person on the earth you shouldn't associate with? Because <laughs> anytime you pass by someone, they're your neighbor. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan was perfectly clear on that. But the Pharisees used to have a saying. Again, remember, these are elitists, trying, finite righteous men, uh, usually self-righteous men. And their saying said, Thank God I am not a Gentile, or a dog, or a woman. So by excluding categories, you can see what they felt made them important. A Jewish man. That, in their mind, was the epitome of a creature. And so anytime we are biased against some category of person, we are ultimately explaining what we believe is valuable about, it, about ourselves. And, and we're dead wrong. <laughs> What's valuable about you is that you're creating God's image as is that category of person <laughs> that you may be labeling. And so uh, Jesus in the... Ne- there's a kind of a common word. I hadn't heard it a lot until... Uh, Trump's campaign, basically, you know, the xenophobia. How many have heard in the news? Xenophobia, xenophobia. And xenophobia is actually a compound word. I love compounds word because it's kind of two words put together that give you this nuance of something else. And xenos is stranger, and phobia, obviously, is fear. Fear of strangers or bias towards strangers. And it results in this us and them. And anytime we do that, we demonize the them so that we can proclaim ourselves better. I have another favorite word. This is a, this is a rabbit trail. Uh, uh, philoxenos is a Greek word. Philos means friend. Xenos, again, is stranger. Friend, stranger. That's the word we interpret as hospitality in Scripture. Making a friend out of a stranger. Perfectly, you blend the two and you see the nuance of what it is. Right? Compound words like politics. Many blood-sucking parasites, politics. <laughs> so, so this xenophobia thing is, it's, it's anything that's not like me, I oppose. I, and, and by doing that, I identify what I think is righteous about me or beneficial about being me. And Mark chapter 7 is an example of that coming to, to light. Uh, It says, From there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman, thank God I'm not a Gentile dog or woman, uh, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. Two out of the three categories are satisfied here where he should have a bias a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
And he said to her, hmm, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Third category. He's highlighting and emphasizing, and this scripture is bringing all of the pharisaical biases to light. She answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. And the demon left her daughter, or has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Now, I don't think for a second that Jesus was xenophobic. (laughs) I think he was raising the issue, again, like the passage before. This was an issue. Here are the criteria that this society uh, filters people's quality through. Gentile, woman, dog. And he was, I don't think for a second he took that position. I think he raised the position to see what her perspective was. Would she come entitled? Would she come battling? Or would she still remain humble when the bias was raised? And that's kind of a question for ourselves, too. When people are opposed to us, xenophobic towards you as a Christian, you as a woman or a man, you as whatever socioeconomic uh, strata you're in, or... Um, whatever uh, race you are, when people raise that, do we automatically become opposed to them? Or do we remain humble and let them have their position and still come in humility? And he was, I think, testing this woman's character and attitude. So Gentile woman, even the dogs get to eat. And she takes that position, remains humble, and says, I still want the blessing. And he gives it to her because of that statement, it says. And so I think you can see here, all through scriptures, Jesus was very honoring of women and Gentiles. <laughs> they were often the heroes of his parables and his, his, uh, the stories recorded. So he was not xenophobic, but he was aware of xenophobia. <laughs> And so we need to be aware, not just of our own, but also how we respond to being opposed as Christians or, or whatever. Because it does reveal our hearts. And so apart from the practices where the first section was talking about rules and rules and rules and more restrictive and, and uh, uh, dirty hands, this is about people. This is about how we view other people. That all people literally are God's children as human beings created in his image. We may not all be living that. We may not all be saved as far as redemption. But we all have equal value. Christian, non-Christian have equal value. And you can tell this, what, you know, the impulses of our own human nature when you're... If you were to meet someone who was a different race, is there any kind of us and them? Uh, what about the LGBTQRST community? Is there... Is there a rub, you know, like, is there a sense of opposition to us and them? Um, We need to be careful of that because that aroma of our bias will come through in all of our language. And this is very critical where we need to understand what we believe actions are wrong, but the value of the person is not diminished by their actions. A person's value is fully intact because they're created in the image of God. They can't do anything to diminish their value. They can do something to diminish their ability to function, 
from that value. But the value is always intact. There are no people who are better or worse. And this is what Jesus emphasizes here. And the third part of this passage uh, is the dirty methods. <laughs> uh, Jesus returned from the region of Tyre. And yes, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger in his ear and after spitting, touched the man's tongue. I, not a volunteer, I'd like to demonstrate that. Of course not. It's dirty. It's like, are you kidding me? Why do you have to do that? Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell, or to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus puts his finger in the guy's ear, <laughs> spits on his finger, puts it in the, on the guy's tongue. He has done all things well. <laughs> That's a failing grade in medical school, I think. But he healed the man. And so sometimes we have this ideology or this theory about how God will operate, that God is you know, respectful of me as a human being and he will not embarrass me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He will all sorts of things. So we, we presume God has a certain protocol and he will meet me through the protocol I presume he works through. Why would he stray from that? It makes it confusing and he wants to reach me so I determine how God will reach out to me. I don't think this man expected God, to, uh, Jesus to stick his finger in his ear and, and uh, spit on his finger and put it in his mouth. Uh, John 9, 47, another example. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, this is the light of the world speaking, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I am the light of the world. <laughs> Again, dirty method. This is not, uh, not high-class protocol. And Jesus does not always reach out to you in the manner in which you determine he should. And so if you are not looking for him wherever he chooses to reach you, uh, you may miss him. Uh, he, reached, he reached Balaam through a, a donkey, a dirty animal. He addressed Israel's sin by asking a prophet to marry a hooker. He fixed one man problem by sticking his ear in his, his finger in his ear and another man by spitting and making mud and putting it. God does not have a protocol. God reaches you how God wants to reach you. And he may use it with the pastor speaking. He may use it by uh, the cashier at Safeway as you pass by. He may use a young child. He may use a bird or a cloud. <laughs> the question is, are we... 
listening just to hear wherever his voice comes from, or have we established a protocol of how God works in our lives? And I clearly believe that sometimes we miss the message of God because we've qualified how he will speak to us. He will not speak to me through a televangelist because I think those guys are crooks. Okay, you just eliminated one of his options. If you eliminate any options, it's the same as the legalism that, produ- that, that looks to avoid sin that we started with. You're taking off the table what doesn't belong and, al- and, and giving God the criteria of how he will reach you. And there are, uh, dirty hands do not matter. There are no dirty people and there are, in God's mind, no dirty methods. He'll determine what it is that he will reach you through. So in conclusion, I want to kind of summarize this way. As I said, the fork in the road, the global perspective of of what I've been uh, explaining this morning. If you read in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so in this, if you look at legalism and you look at the freedom in Christ, and you start with the same template. In other words, what's right and wrong? Legalism takes all of the options, puts everything on the table, and says, you've got to eliminate that, eliminate this, eliminate that, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, avoid this, avoid that, and is consumed with ridding that table of all the things that don't belong, presuming that whatever would be left at the end must be good. That equation is actually false. Because we will be obsessed with eliminating, eliminating, eliminating. You can find bad in anything. You've heard we can find good in anything. You can find bad in anything too. (laughs) And so the more restrictive we become, the more obsessed we are with following law and avoiding sin, the more we fall into the ditch. It's like learning to drive by keeping an eye on the ditch so that you don't drive into it. Right? That's ridiculous. You keep your eye on the road to stay on the road. If you're trying to make sure you don't drive into the ditch by looking at the ditch, you're going to end up in the ditch. Freedom in Christ, this, this way where righteousness is already established, starts with all things are lawful, but not everything's good. I'm looking for the good instead of looking to avoid the bad. And please do not think those are the same. (laughs) An emphasis of this religious, legalistic, avoid sin mindset, the emphasis will never get you to the doing good part because you will never run out of things to pay attention of what not to do. And so this is a change of heart kind of message. This is, uh, you have absolute freedom. Every day you wake up, what, is, what, what, what you should avoid should not be in your head. You're looking for what are the best options to do good, to glorify God, to love my neighbor. What are the best options? And when you focus on that, when you have the freedom to do that, you will hear the voice of God. And by doing that, by default, you will quite obviously avoid the sin that legalism would ask you to focus on. So I 
Any questions? <laughs> no. Um, it's, this, is not, this is kind of a, as I said, it's a fork in the road issue. But our Christian faith is about pursuing God, pursuing good, hearing his voice. It's a relationship. Live freely. The more you are focused on what to avoid, the less free you will be and, and the more trouble you're in. So I'm just going to, I just want to close in a word of prayer. The worship team will come up. I just want to close in a word of prayer and then ask God to actually give us opportunity this week to have this <laughs> kind of hit us in the face, as it were, so that we can see the freedom we have and hear the voice of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the freedom that, that we are not under this onerous task of trying to make sure we don't sin, make sure we avoid the wrong things. But God, we are absolutely free at all times because you've redeemed us. We're free. Our righteousness is established that we can live life simply walking this earth, looking for good things to do, to glorify you, to love our neighbor. And that we can rely on the fact that you will speak to us. You will say, this is it. This is the good. This is the best. And so we can select those things that are good rather than emphasizing all the avoiding the bad. Keep us from this trap of presuming that when we focus on what not to do, that that will prove our righteousness or, or, or produce any righteousness. It's very clear that there's no power in the law to do that for us. And since you've already given us righteousness, why should we be focusing on that in the first place? Instead, we are free just to live in your voice and live in relationship with you. And, and you will uh, help us, Lord, to, uh, to glorify you. I pray that you'll give us specifically opportunity this week where this would come to the forefront, where we would, however you do it, Lord, we would see that there is freedom in Christ. And that my opportunity is, is to hear your voice and follow your lead. God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the ability to do that. and Sharpen our ears that we might hear you more clearly and serve you better so that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.